It has been my hope that over these past few weeks that you have experienced, that you have come to know and experience a Jesus that is much bigger, much more substantial than you have ever thought or dreamt of. A Jesus that is more impactful than you could ever imagine. You see, you know, usually what happens to us is we, we kind of associate with a certain picture of Jesus. And this can, it's not a bad thing, but it can limit our understanding of Jesus. We like to find a Jesus that we resonate with and we, we, we kind of attach ourselves to that Jesus. Some of us like to think about the Jesus that welcomes the little children. Others of us resonate with the Jesus who kind of lounges having dinner with his disciples or the Jesus that teaches on the side of a hill or maybe it's the Jesus that forgives your sin or the Jesus that is someday gonna return and get his followers. We all have a tendency to resonate with a certain picture of Jesus. But Jesus is so much more than all of those things. He is all those things and more. So it has been my hope that throughout these last few weeks, you have seen a bigger, more substantial Jesus. In the first week, we saw Jesus as prophet. And we saw that Jesus as prophet interacted. He had an encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. And there we learned that Jesus is the truth. Not just a truth, but the truth. Then we looked at Jesus as priest. And we looked at Jesus' encounter with a paralyzed man, and we learned that Jesus is the one who has the power to forgive sins. Then last week, we looked at Jesus as the merciful judge, and we looked at his encounter, the encounter that he had with some Jewish leaders. And he explained to those Jewish leaders that he is the judge and that he is a merciful judge, but he is going to return, and when he returns, his justice is going to be full and complete. This week, we're going to look at another encounter that Jesus has. This is an encounter that he has with his disciples. In fact, it's the last encounter Jesus has with his disciples while here still on earth. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In the Bible that the church provides, if you're following along there, it's on page 882, 882. And you need to know before we look at this passage that for thousands of years before this text was written, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were looking for a king. They had been looking for a king and their king was going to be a great king. And this king they expected would defeat all their enemies and return Israel to its glory and to its prominence. But what they didn't expect is they didn't expect that their king would be born in a manger. They didn't expect that their king would have no weapons, no army, and no political power. And they certainly didn't expect that their king would be crucified on a cross. Even though all throughout his life, Jesus gave evidence after evidence that he was who he said he was. He proved his identity time and time again. He proved his identity through his place of birth. He proved his identity through his lineage. He proved his identity through his miracles and through what he taught. So many signs and wonders that John says that there is not enough pages in books in the world to write them all down. Yet most people did not believe that Jesus was the promised king. Now the book of Acts starts out recording some of this history. 
Let's check that out. Look at Acts 1, beginning in verse 1. In my former book, this is Luke writing this book of Acts. He has also written the gospel of Luke. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, Jesus began, after beginning, excuse me, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke says that I told you about all the things Jesus did and the things that he taught. And not only that, after his crucifixion, he actually appeared to his disciples and to a bunch of other people and stayed with them for 40 days. Then Luke takes us to an encounter that Jesus has with his disciples at the end of these 40 days. Jesus and the disciples, they're, sit around, they're sitting around, they're talking, they're eating, they're hanging out. And Jesus begins to give them some instructions about the Holy Spirit. The disciples then ask about the kingdom, and when is this kingdom that you have talked about, when is this kingdom going to be put into place? And Jesus says to them, that's really none of your business. You don't have to concern yourself with the time or the place when this is going to happen. I have some instructions for you. I have some things that you need to do. You're to be my witnesses. You are to tell people about me. Then look what happens, the beginning of verse 9. This had to be crazy. After he had said this, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Crazy. They are all sitting around talking and Jesus gives them some instructions and then Jesus begins to go up into the sky. He's rising into the sky right before their very eyes. Can, come on. Can you imagine this? You're sitting talking, he's giving you, right up into the sky. I mean, look at verse nine. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible. And there are a lot of remarkable statements in the Bible. We call this the ascension. This is Jesus' very last act on earth. This is Jesus' return to heaven. It is the ascension. Now, we don't talk about the ascension very often. In fact, I don't even remember ever hearing a sermon about the ascension. Maybe you have, but I don't think I've heard a sermon about the ascension. But I'm telling you, Jesus wants us to hear this today. Now, I don't say this very often, but I know that Jesus wants to, us to hear this today because this sermon series was kind of brought to my attention, if you will, back in November. Back in November, I kind of had the idea, God lays it, Jesus, prophet, priest, judge, king. So we start kind of thinking about the sermon series. 
Jim doesn't come up with the dates for this series until February or March. Are you following me? Idea for the series in November. Dates for the series in February or March. And this week on Monday, I go in to our worship planning meeting at 11 in the morning on Monday morning. And I go into that meeting and I say to the people, hey, this is what it's about. We got Jesus as king. And the idea is that Jesus ascends into heaven. It's the ascension. And I think, man, that's pretty cool. We can talk about the ascension. I haven't heard much about the ascension. The next day, I receive an email from Mason Cheryl, and Mason says to me, hey, do you know what my reading was for today? My reading for today was on the ascension. Well, you know why his reading for that day was on the ascension? Because Thursday was ascension day, which makes today ascension Sunday. Now, some of you have never even heard of ascension Sunday. That's because in our tradition, we don't talk about Ascension Sunday very often because we don't talk about Ascension very often. This is actually the day that we celebrate Jesus is ascending into heaven. And I'm so slow that I didn't even realize that until I received an email on Tuesday that that was the case. So I think God wants us to talk about the Ascension today. Jesus ascends into heaven. And to understand what's going on here, we have to look at that word ascends because that's what's happening here. Now, the text says he goes up, but there's other translations that actually say he ascended into heaven. And ascend is not a word we use very often, is it? We don't say, hey, she ascended the ladder. We say, no, she climbed up the ladder. When we look at airplanes, we might say, well, that airplane ascended into the sky, but no, we say the airplane just kind of went up into the sky. We don't typically use the word ascend, and I think that's because it's a more formal word. Ascend is kind of a formal word. It carries with it some weight. It has the idea of a change of position. It has the idea of something meaningful and impactful happening. We typically use the word ascend for a coronation. We speak of a person who ascends to the throne. They go up onto the platform and they take the steps and they sit on the throne and we say, she ascended to the throne. It's a formal representation of what happens when somebody takes a new position, claims a new position of authority. On Netflix, there's this series. It's a relatively new series. It's called The Crown. I don't know if any of you are aware of The Crown. It's a fairly uh, critically acclaimed series, and it tells the story of Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, and it speaks of her early years in her coming to power in post-World War II Great Britain. And in this series, they recreate Elizabeth's coronation as the Queen of England. And they recreate that scene, and it caused me to go back and actually watch the real coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And to say that it is a spectacular event is an understatement. It is an amazing event, this coronation of Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain. There's a military processional, and in this military processional, they're proceeding through the streets of London, and there are tens of thousands of people lining the streets of London as this golden carriage proceeds down the streets of London on its way to Westminster Abbey. 
And when Elizabeth arrives in this golden carriage at Westminster Abbey, she exits the carriage and she begins to walk towards the abbey and she enters the abbey to, to trumpet fanfare and choral accolade. And there are thousands of people in Westminster Abbey. The nobility is waiting for her to come in down the aisle and she walks down the aisle with this flowing crimson robe. And she walks down the aisle and she proceeds slowly and regally down the aisle and she comes to these stairs and she walks up these stairs towards the throne of King George. It's a 600-year-old chair that she is walking up to and she ascends to the throne. And she sits down upon the throne and the Archbishop of Canterbury comes and, and he places the crown upon her brow. And all the people, 7,000 people in Westminster Abbey stand up and shout, God save the queen, God save the queen, God save the queen. It is this regal, majestic ascension to the throne. When Elizabeth ascends to the throne, she does more than just change her elevation. She rises to a new position of power and authority and majesty. She's ascended to the throne. She is the queen. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did more than just change his elevation. He did more than just return to heaven. Jesus ascends to the throne in heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and there he assumes new power and new authority and new majesty because he now sits on the throne of heaven. Jesus is the king. Now he's always been the king. Jesus has always been God so he has always had authority over us. Some people have recognized that. When the wise men go to King Herod after Jesus has been born, they ask King Herod, where is it that we are going to find who? Where is it that we're going to find the king of the Jews? And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry as king, when he enters into Jerusalem, he receives or he acknowledges his kingship as he comes in fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And at the end of his life, when he stands before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate asks him, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus affirms, yes, that is true. Some people recognized that Jesus was the king, but now something different, something more special, something more miraculous, something more majestic has taken place. Jesus has actually ascended to the throne and he has taken on new power, new responsibility, and new authority. And this new power, majesty, and authority, his being enthroned, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords has great meaning for you and for me. It is just as important as the crucifixion and as the resurrection. You see, we often talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection, but we don't talk enough about the ascension. The crucifixion forgives us of our sins and the resurrection entitles us to salvation when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We know that those two things are important.
the ascension is important as well because it enthrones Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there are five essentials for you and for me that come out of this ascension. Five practical applications for our lives. The first essential or practical application is this. The fact that Jesus is the ascended king means that we can have a personal relationship with him. The fact that Jesus is the ascended king means that we can have a personal relationship with him. When Jesus became flesh, when he became flesh, that means that he became human and he became human forever. But by, coming, by, by becoming human and coming to earth, that meant that he was constrained by time and by space. So if you wanted to have a relationship with Jesus, you had to be where Jesus was at the time he's there. If you wanted to talk to him, if you wanted to relate to him, if you wanted to experience him, you had to be where Jesus was because Jesus was confined by time and space because he now, like you and like me, he is now a human being. And as a result, he limited himself to time and space. But when he ascends to heaven... He takes himself out of the time-space continuum. And out of the time-space continuum, now he can have a personal relationship with each one of us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. While he is on earth, he is limited to time and to space. When he ascends to heaven and sits himself on the throne, he is no longer constrained by the time-space continuum, and through the Holy Spirit, he can give to us, and we can reciprocate. If we believe in him, we can have a personal relationship with him. You see, in heaven, he is doing all he did here on earth, and so much more, because he is doing it through the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, there's an encounter that Mary Magdalene has with Jesus, it's after Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus, is, Jesus has died, he has been crucified, and Mary is there, and she, Mary is crying, Mary is upset, Jesus has just died, where is Jesus gone, and what does Mary do? Mary is there in front of the tomb, and she is weeping, and she has this encounter with two angels. And then the two angels kind of get done encountering and talking with her, and Mary turns and she sees the risen Jesus and she grabs a hold of him. She grabs a hold of Jesus. And she holds on for dear life. And look at what Jesus says in response. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now some people here think that Jesus is saying, hey, you don't touch me. Don't touch me because I am special or I am sacred. That's not what he's saying because later in this same chapter, he asked Thomas to touch him. So what's going on here? What's happening here? Mary has grabbed on to Jesus and she is holding on for dear life because she's lost him once already. She doesn't want to lose him again. 
But Jesus says, no, Mary, you don't get it. You don't understand. If you hold on to me, I cannot ascend to my Father. And actually, if you hold on to me, you are going to limit the relationships that I'm able to have with other people. He says, I must ascend to my Father. And when I ascend to my Father, through the Holy Spirit, you are going to continue to have a relationship with me. You are going to have a relationship in which I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And it's the same for you and me. If Jesus was still here on earth in human form, he'd be limited by time and space. But he has ascended to heaven and now through the Holy Spirit, yes, he is still in human form, but now through the Holy Spirit, he is able to have a personal relationship with anyone who believes in him. So if you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that means that Jesus is in your heart. And you can have a personal relationship with him. Second, the ascended Jesus means that he has given us a path. We have a path to follow. Jesus' path was first crucifixion, then resurrection, then ascension. That's the order of Jesus' path. First crucifixion, then resurrection, then ascension. The path of Jesus is our path as well. Now, many of us don't resonate with this idea of crucifixion. We like the idea of resurrection and ascension. But in order to get to resurrection and ascension, you must go through crucifixion. Every one of us. Nobody is exempt from having to go through crucifixion to get to resurrection and ascension. Reflecting on this, this is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 about this path. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See the order here? See the focus of what Paul is saying? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is crucifixion. Then what happens? Then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. See the order? Jesus had to go through crucifixion to get to resurrection and ascension. Are we any different than Jesus? No, we're no different than Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 12, now this is interesting. In John chapter 12, later in John, earlier in John chapter 12, It is the recollection of Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry as king. Later in the same chapter, in John chapter 12, look at what Jesus says. Very truly I tell you. What does that mean? Pay attention. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is Jesus' path. 
Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. It is our path as well. First crucifixion, then resurrection, and then ascension. We must go through crucifixion to get to resurrection and ascension. Now, I know this is not a popular message. This is not a popular concept. We live in a world where we're focused upon uh, our supposed identities. We wrap ourselves in certain identities that we think are going to help us in this world, that are think are going to bring fulfillment. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic identities that we wrap ourselves in. Rich, poor, athlete, musician, student, gay, lesbian, tran, Dutch. We wrap ourselves, we wrap ourselves in these identities that we think are going to give us purpose and meaning and value. And all they do when we wrap ourselves in these identities is lead us to a path of death. The identity is I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you want a fulfilling, meaningful, incredible life, full of joy, full of purpose, if you want that life, your identity needs to be Jesus Christ and that means you have to die to yourself. You have to get over yourself and recognize that it's all about Jesus, that you have been crucified, and Jesus now lives in you. There's this guy by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller lived in the 19th century. That's the 18th, 1800s, for those of us who are kind of slow. And this guy, George Mueller, lives this incredible, meaningful, purposeful, joy-filled, like miraculous life. He starts 117 schools that provide a Christ-centered education to about 120,000 kids, mostly orphans. That's a crazy life. That's an impactful life. That's meaning. He experienced miracle after miracle of Jesus entering his world and doing great stuff. George Mueller's asked towards the end of his life, what is it? What's the secret of what's happened here? What do you accredit all this to? This is what he says. This is what he says. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval and censure. Died to approval or blame, even of brethren or friend. Do you get what he's saying? I died to myself. I got over myself, my opinions, my preferences, tastes, and will. Why? Because he recognized that he was crucified with Christ and he no longer lives, but Christ lives inside of him. Jesus gives us a path. It's his path and it's our path. You must go through crucifixion to get to resurrection and ascension. If you want resurrection, if you want that power, and if you want the ascension and that glorification, you must go through crucifixion. Third, the third thing, and the third principle actually helps us with the second principle. The fact that Jesus is the ascended king means that he is powerful. 
The fact that he is the ascended king means that he is powerful. He is supremely powerful. This means that he is in control of everything. Why should I worry? Why should I be afraid? Why should I be filled with anxiety? Because Jesus, I shouldn't be. Jesus is in control of everything. He is the one who sits upon the throne. God has raised him to the highest place and he sits on the throne in majesty and in power with all authority. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter one. This is how Paul explains it. He's speaking of God. He, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body. What does this say? It says that God is in control through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne as king and everything is in his control. All authority has been given to him. He micromanages everything. And look at that little word. Look at that little word at the end, for. What does he exert this power and authority? For what purpose? For the church. That is for you. That's not like just for Calvary Church, this big building that sits here on the East Beltline. That is for each one of you. He is exerting that power and authority for your good. There is no need to worry. There is no need to be anxious. There is no need to be afraid because Jesus is working every day for you. And if he is working for you, that means that you can have the peace that passes all understanding. Amen. He is in control and he is using his authority for you. Amen. Fourth, the fact that Jesus is the ascended king means that we have purpose. Turn back to Acts chapter 9. It means that we have purpose. Look again at Acts 1. I said Acts 9, sorry, Acts 1, verse 9. Jesus has ascended. They're there staring into the sky, which honestly, that's completely understandable. If I was hanging out talking with somebody and they just float up into the sky, I'd be staring at the sky as well. But look what happens in verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? There's two guys standing beside these disciples. They're probably angels. And they're like, hey, snap out of it. You need to get to work. Quit staring at the sky. The point is that they don't have time to stand around pondering the mystery of what has just happened. They now need to get to work. Get to work. God has given you through Jesus Christ a purpose. He has given you a mission, and that mission is to go out and tell others about Jesus. You are to show Jesus' love. You are to show Jesus' mercy. You are to speak to Jesus to everyone you come in contact with. It is the purpose that he gave to each one of the disciples, and he, it is the purpose that he gives to each and every one of us who are his followers. No exceptions. I actually don't care what you do for a living. I don't care what job you have. I don't care if you don't have a job. Remember, God's in control. 
And he has put you where he has put you, no matter what you are doing, to tell other people about Jesus, to show other people the love of Jesus, to show other people the mercy of Jesus. That is your purpose in life. It is my purpose in life. You do not have to be a pastor. In fact, it's probably better you're not a pastor. Your purpose is to tell other people about Jesus, showing the love of Jesus, demonstrating the mercy of Jesus. It is the purpose he's given each one of us. Then fifth, I tried to find a fifth P, but I was unsuccessful. Actually, I didn't even try to find a fifth P. I think that's kind of goofy. Fifth, the fact that Jesus is the ascended king means that he is going to return. He is going to return. Look at the end of verse 11 of Acts 1. Look at what the angels say. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus who ascended to heaven, who is seated on the throne, will come back in the same way that he left. Jesus is going to return. And as I said last week, when he returns, for those of us who are followers of his, he is going to make everything right. But what interested me is that the disciples did not continue to stare at the sky. They got to work. They got to work because they recognized that Jesus was going to return. If they didn't think he was going to return, they would have kept staring at the sky or they would have went and done something else. But because they knew he was who he said he was and he said he was going to return, they got to work knowing that he's coming back. And it filled them with the purpose we talked about. And they started going out telling people about him, showing love and demonstrating mercy because they knew he was going to return. It completely changed their lives when Jesus ascended, promising to return. Jesus the King is on the throne. And for these four weeks, I have wanted you to see that Jesus is bigger and more substantial and more meaningful than you have ever thought or imagined in the past. He is your prophet. He is your priest. He is your merciful judge. And he is your king. Do you understand that Jesus is the only one to follow? Jesus is life. There is no other life outside of Jesus. All other paths lead to destruction, misery, and death. Jesus is the only one that offers life and offers that life to the full. If you are here this morning and you do not yet know Jesus, if you do not yet have a personal relationship with him, today is the day. Jesus is the only way to go. I promise you, he is the only one who gives eternal life, and that life starts the day you believe. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the merciful judge, and the king.